Okay, welcome back to another We Do Science Guru Performance podcast. Today is episode 45, and I have another great guest for you, um, who is Dr. Trent Stellingworth. Hi, Trent. Hello, how are you? I'm good, mate. I'm good. So, um, before we sort of get into the topic of the day, um, I know a lot of our listeners will know who you are because they'll have read lots of your research and so on. But do you want to just give us a quick overview as to as to who you are and where you're based and, you know, loosely what your research is on? Sure, no problem. So um, I'm the uh, head of innovation and research for one of our uh, Olympic training centers here in Canada, so the Canadian Sport Institute Pacific. And so I live in Victoria, British Columbia, uh, Canada, um, right on the Atlantic Ocean. And um, our institute deals with 22 sports, but I deal sp- specifically with um, athletics, so track and field, rowing, and triathlon. 50% of my job is service provision in the area of physiology and nutrition with those Olympic class athletes. So I'm honored and humbled to work with uh, some of the, the best DNA in Canada. Um, and then 50% of my job is to drive an innovation and research program within our institute. And so we have six master's and PhD students spread across different sports doing varying projects of which some of the projects are in and around um, nutritional physiology and in that area. Excellent. Yeah, one of your uh, predecessors on this podcast was um, Kevin Carroll, who of course you you know, um, and uh, he obviously heads up nutrition for the English Institute of Sport, and uh, he did a great piece on unleashing the power of food. And yes, um, I, I I don't. I mean, I work in all sorts of areas, but I do work with. Um, the Great Britain fencing team. So I have a um, some work in in a similar sort of Olympic level arena that you do. But most of my work's with professional rugby players. Sort of um, a bigger beast, but a different beast altogether, really. Um, but I, I know, having looked at your work, um, you've done well. I mean, you're a physiologist as well as a, a nutritionist. Um, I share a similar background to you in that regard, although you're um, considerably more published than I am so much of your work that I've read uh, like your case study or um, various um, papers on nutrition and training periodization uh, strategies to support performance and so on clearly has a, a focus in the areas that you work like athletics and marathon running and so on and most of the um, listeners of this podcast will have heard quite a few podcasts obviously with Kevin is one, but we had James Morton on talking about uh, some of the benefits of um, uh, training in a low carbohydrate state, um, as well as the benef- some of the benefits of um, having carbohydrates. We've had various people discuss the pros and cons of carbohydrates for weight management, that sort of thing. And of course, it's become a really topical area. And I, I don't, I think you have to be living under a rock if you haven't been somehow involved in this in this debate you know whether you're a a a recreational triathlete or a or or someone who's just working out and you want to change body composition and so on that that, there seems to be um, a significant focus on on carbohydrate as somehow as the enemy and of course we've we've discussed this in certain certain points of view on this and I, I know you have a specific point of view and I want to get into that with you so before we get more into the whole carbohydrate thing um 
you have done a paper where you've mentioned the importance of periodization, which is something that I'm really into. I, I, I don't like this black and white idea of it's either loads of carbs or no carbs, for example, or we could talk about fats or proteins or whatever. But, I mean, why, why did you feel the need to start to talk about periodization? Yeah, no, that's a good question. I think, um, uh, so I'm also a coach. My wife's an Olympic semifinalist in the 1500, and um, I've done all my coaching and education and work with a, a varying degree of endurance athletes. And their periodization is very entrenched in how you approach the problem of optimizing performance. And it, it just like in periodization of training, you'll have, um, you'll have load, you'll have frequency, and you'll have type. Those exact same concepts can come out in nutrition um, in terms of load, which is the caloric load, the frequency, and then the type of calories, macronutrient and micronutrient that you might choose to to, uh, to consume at certain times of the day. And so um, in nutrition, I can think of a lot of examples of macro periodization, um, macro being macronutrient, so looking at carbs, protein, and fat, but also micro periodization in terms of when during the day should you eat your protein? How do you spread that out? So I'm on some papers where we looked at different spreads of protein to maximize muscle protein synthesis throughout the day. Uh, for example, there's a new research on inflammatory response to exercise and hepcidin release, and hepcidin blocks iron absorption. Well, I right away look at that at, in terms of microperiodization of iron. Like when are you choosing to... to um, to take your iron in and around exercise and the fact that, you know, tannins and tea and coffee or calcium block iron absorption. So um, I, I, I look at nutrition very much like I look at training. Um, they're synergistic. They go together. Um, you know, elite athletes will train 600 to 900 times a year, but they eat, uh, well, it depends, 1,200 to 1,600 times a year. And if you know, if you're an athlete and you don't think a stimulus repeated 12 to 1600 times a year is not going to make a difference, and it's probably not an athlete that um, I want to work with because it just doesn't even make sense. Um, certainly, the stimulus from training is massive, and it's first and foremost. Don't get me wrong, um, but but nutrition, just like training, um, uh, nutrition stimulus can add up over time as well. So. Uh, yeah, so I, I, I guess in my practice with athletes, I'm constantly looking at, like I, I'll probably have an hour to two hour discussion with the coach and athlete in terms of exactly what they're doing before I make a single nutrition recommendation. Like what's their periodization look like? What block are they in? What are their body composition goals? How far away are they from, uh, or where? how far away do they live from where they train? So that right away, they'll dictate whether we need to buy a commercialized rec- product or whether they can go home to make food, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, and I'll collect all that information and then sit down and, and come up with an individualized plan for them um, based on their lifestyle and based on, on their outcomes and goals that they need to, to work on. But the underlying theme and current to all that is, is periodization. And um, I cannot stress enough that if you're interested in doing nutrition and working with athletes, take a lot of time to pull up and get some books on periodization and understand training, understand it inside out and backwards. Your ability to communicate with a coach and athlete uh, will will be exponentially better. Um, Your ability to talk their language, your ability to 
for them to believe in what you're bringing to the table um, are all very important factors to having compliance and having good outcomes. So I hope that as a general answer. Absolutely. Sets up in periodization yeah no it, it i mean the listeners will know i've sort of gotten into this quite a bit lately because i've mentioned um the importance of periodization and uh, in fact one of the reasons why i've done that is um recently i i went and did a um uh, uh another postgraduate course in strength and conditioning um partly for sort of cpd or you know continuing education is what you guys call it um but also um, oh, I thought you said OCD there. OCD. Well, it's the same thing, isn't it? I think. Yeah, okay. I mean, once you get into postgraduate stuff, you just—it's basically it's OCD, isn't it? Um, no, you guys call it CEUs, I think, but um, but CPD. But anyway, in that there was some fantastic uh, lectures and papers and so on on um, periodization science. You know, like um, Greg Haff's work and all that stuff, and and it really it really got me to think just how much in sports science or specifically strength and conditioning science they've really gotten into this business of periodization and for reasons we don't need to spend too much time on because I am actually going to get an expert in to talk about periodization soon but it also made me realize just how much we don't focus nutritional strategies to match these things Um, and I know that I know that we're starting to think that way because you've written about it and um, I've heard it from all sorts of people um, but it certainly isn't a mainstream sort of concept. And I guess to bring it back to one of the most sort of topical areas right now, which is this business of is carbs the enemy or not, is this idea that, yeah, we're starting to learn that there are certainly some great strategies utilizing um, training low, sleep low and all that stuff that I've gotten into with James Morton, for example, um, there's ways of improving fat oxidation, but also improving fat oxidation doesn't mean you're necessarily losing body fat, um, and you know that's an energy balance issue primarily. And 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 this black and white sort of approach that we all have, whether or not it's just too much information for people to handle, um, but the mere fact that we are working with individuals, and we like, I think the best thing, one of the best things you just said was this idea that. I need to sit down and chat to the individual and discuss with them things, you know, perform a needs analysis, etc., before you start to give advice. Well, that's critical, although I only learned that relatively recently in, the, in, you know, in the last few years, really, about how important that process is, rather than jumping in and saying, right, you're an endurance athlete, you should just eat carbohydrates, you know, all day long. You're a strength and power athlete. Let's get let's shove a ton of protein down your throat. You know, we need to think about these things, and we need to learn about these things, like strength and conditioning and periodization science for nutritionists, so that they can understand the needs of their clients, so that they can effectively um, periodize this stuff. So, let's break a few of these things down. Um, I mean, firstly, uh, since I think carbohydrates is one of the main things that we should get into. I mean, ultimately, why, why should we not, what, sorry, why, you know, why, why should we not ignore the power of carbohydrates? Oh. Well, yeah, that's, uh, uh, that's a, uh, uh, a very big cliff to jump off. But, of um, <laughs> uh, you know, I think if you go back and you understand basic biochemistry and you understand basic physiology and you understand 
which fuels are readily used quickly and with a high level of efficiency in terms of liters of oxygen consumed to the production of calories. Um, carbohydrate chumps, trumps excuse me, fat and protein. Um, August Crow in 1924, in one of the very first oxygen consumption studies, August Crow went on to win the Nobel Prize, uh, um, showed that for every liter of oxygen consumed, carbohydrates produce about five and a half calories. And for every liter of um, oxygen consumed when you're burning 100% fat, um, it's only about 4.8 calories of energy production. And I know 5.5 calories doesn't sound that different from 4.8, but when you multiply that out by liters of oxygen consumed over a two-hour marathon, that efficiency and that efficiency of, of oxidation by 100% carbs versus 100% fat does start to make a big difference. Um, so there's there's that part of it. Um uh, that that's probably one of the biggest reasons why um, uh, for longer duration sports, why carbohydrate uh, oxidation makes good sense. Secondly, the mobilization of fats takes a lot longer than the mobilization of carbohydrate in the muscle. Glycogen is actually preferentially located uh, around contractile properties in the muscle. It's there and ready to use for instantaneous energy production. So when you get to explosive sports, um, and everything, uh, uh, or, or sports where there's not a lot of time, you, you need an instantaneous energy source to, to, to be explosive and, and to, um, to produce ATP. Um, if you look at the prolonged cycling studies, it's not until about, well, it depends on the athlete, like 20 to 40 minutes when there's an appreciable amount of fat oxidation that starts. It takes a while to turn on that engine. That's partly why sometimes athletes will feel a bit sluggish in the warm-up and then after or in a run and or or a cycle and after 20 to 30 to 40 minutes all of a sudden settle into a groove and that's just it just takes time for fat oxidation to kick in and help support um support the primary source of of oxidation which is which is carbohydrate so uh, don't get me wrong. I'm not an anti-low-carb guy. You need to, I mean, we'll probably get into this. I have papers where I'm recommending this, but it needs to be used strategically and not chronically. And um, the other huge issue with this that we need to put on the table is there's not definitive, scientifically established definitions for what ketogenic is versus, say, low-carb versus moderate-carb versus paleo, which everyone thinks is low-carb but isn't necessarily. It's just a choosing different carbohydrate sources, it's pretty hard to be high carb in paleo versus what the Kenyans eat, which is 60 to 70, 70, uh, 65 to 75% of their diet is carbohydrate rich. Um, athletes need to move up and down that spectrum. It's a spectrum. It's not black and white. Um, Twitter is 140 characters. We're going to talk an hour on this. And that's yeah. part of the problem is Twitter causes polarization of ideas because you only have 140 characters. Absolutely. It's a, mm. it's a spectrum, and depending on your exercise demands, depending on how fast you want to go, depending on your training phase, depending on your sport, you're going to be up and down that spectrum at different times of the year. And don't get me wrong, I actually think the vast majority of sedentary people eat too much carbs. Mm. And... I mean, I'm only running four days a week now, and I would eat way more paleo than I did when I was running 100 miles a week 10 years ago. Um, so I, 
Yeah. I hope that starts to the start. No, it does. No, no, no. It's exa- I, you know, and I mean, most of the previous podcasts have. I mean, my my I have several big messages, and one of them is the importance of not polarizing this stuff. You know, periodization. Ask yourself, what am I actually trying to do here? And um, and it's all about context, which is sort of my catchword throughout these these podcasts because it really is you know you've got to ask yourself why what you know why i mean i you know i'm very into um trying to improve people's sort of metabolic efficiency metabolic flexibility and all that stuff um i i like you know i I mean i work with all kinds of people and i would agree with you lots of people overeat carbohydrates one of the reasons is because they eat the same thing every day so, yeah, they might train four times a week and they might do a hell of a lot of training on those four days. But then there's, you know, uh, a bunch of days where they're not trained and yet they're eating the same amount of food. That's kind of where it all goes a bit wrong. And, you know, there's some fantastic research that is coming out that shows that there are some uh, some really clear benefits to periodically training low carbohydrate. But like... Um, Louise Burke uh, said in, in a, I think it was in a 2010 review in the Scandinavian Journal of Medicine and whatever it was, um, that um, the evidence that, that chronically training low carbs for an extended period of time, i.e. these people that are just permanently trying to go keto or low carb all the time, does actually hamper the muscle's ability to use carbs eaten before a competition. So to quote her... Um, Professor Burke, uh, what we thought was glycogen sparing may have actually been glycogen impairing, and I think that that's a, an interesting concept because, of course, you can be you can be really good fat oxidizer, and you can certainly finish your endurance race, but you're not probably you're probably not going to win it, and that's the whole point is you want to help that person win it. Now, obviously, out of season, get them super efficient, fantastic fat oxidation rates, but. You know, this periodization thing then becomes important because what are we trying to do next week or next month? Well, if you want to win something and you've not even taught the body how to use carbs, blah, 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 which we'll talk about in a minute, it's an issue, isn't it? I would even slightly rephrase that. In the off-season, we aren't necessarily looking for maximizing fat oxidation, right? It's a byproduct of the fact that for endurance athletes, we're looking to maximize mitochondria. Mm. And so that is the key endurance question that a physiologist can help a coach with. And there's a lot of training things you can do to maximize mitochondrial content, Mm. which as a byproduct increases fat oxidation. Uh, But there's a lot of nutritional things we can do to help stimulate mitochondrial biogenesis even further. And people forget when they think mitochondria, they think it's 100% fat. Uh Uh-uh. One of the major substrates in the mitochondria is carbohydrate. And if you you take carbohydrate from glycogen and you oxidize it in the mitochondria, you get 36 ATP. If you take glycogen, it doesn't go into the mitochondria through the enzyme pyruvate dehydrogenase, PDH, and it goes to lactate. You only get 3 ATP. And so I, I sit down with athletes and coaches and say, would you rather get 36 miles to the gallon or 3 miles to the gallon? Let's focus on making as much mitochondria as possible. So the product of glycolysis pyruvate has uh, an increased sensitivity and opportunity to be oxidized um, aerobically or, or via oxidative phosphorylation. And, um, you know, rewinding, um, my very my second publication in my entire career um, 
was what Luis Burke was mentioning there. Uh, I was a young uh, grad student. I was at ACSM. I met with Luis and her husband, John. They had just run a five-day fat adaptation study. And the lab I'm in uh, me measured at, I was in for my PhD through Lawrence Spreet at the University of Guelph. We specialized in pyruvate dehydrogenase PDH measurement, enzyme measurement, which is the gateway for carbohydrate into the mitochondria. And my whole PhD was on PDH. So that's one of my my top two or three papers is is looking at five days of fat adaptation. And long story short is PDH um, shuts down appreciably so that um, and glycogenolysis shuts down appreciably even when you have a day of high carb diet. So it's it doesn't restore right away and, and basically you shut down your muscles ability or, or a lot of the ability to produce um, energy from carbohydrate and so now the ketogenic folks would say well five days isn't long enough you need to go a month but to my knowledge there's only one paper in athletes 1982 Finney that went one month and two people improved three didn't change and two got worse so like that, that that's not evidence to me um, and uh, the p-value is 0.6 so we have a lot of work to do, and and you also mentioned about um, about fat oxidation. So if we maximize fat oxidation, we can no problem in one month. We can move an athlete from about values of 0. 0.6 or 0. 0.8 grams per minute of fat oxidation. We can push them up to 1.5. That's a huge level of fat oxidation. 1.5 grams per minute of fat. It's it's doubled. It's a, it's amazing. But just do the math for a second. 1.5 grams per minute multiplied by 60 minutes to get an hour, multiplied by 9 calories per gram. That's 810 calories coming from fat per hour. World-class marathoners required, require 1,200 to 1,500 calories an hour to get through the race. So if you go ketogenic and, and you're getting 800 calories an hour and now you've shut off your body's ability to use carbs, you have a massive shortfall of energy. Now, if you back off intensity, somewhere around four to four and a half hours of marathoning can be done at 800 calories an hour. So for the non-elites, it's an interesting paradigm. Mm -hmm. But for your elite athletes go, that want to go to the Olympics and every single event, even including the race walk, because it's so inefficient and it's a four-hour event, including road cycling, if you've shut off your body's ability to use carbs, um, you've basically taken away gears four, five, and six. And, you know, maybe maybe I'll eat my hat when, when data research comes out. But when I look at the biochemistry, I look at the physiology, I look at everything that's out there, I, I just don't understand the mechanism of why you would want to shut off your body's ability to use carbs as a fuel. Just doesn't make sense. Yeah, I, I mean, it's interesting how so many people get so emotionally entrenched into a certain point of view and you know I've I mean we've we've discussed this with many people on this podcast and um, most people you know pretty much all of them like yourself will take a balanced view you know whatever the opinion is whether it's based on whatever the evidence is you know and yeah I, I mean it, it, look at the end of the day um, if you're working with elite athletes you need to be outcome focused you know it's about winning the race so there's different ways to skin a cat and 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 you have to look at that partly from the perspective of what suits a person best in terms of 
you know what they like to do what they don't like to do and you know and and you play a role in that process and um you know you you, you really do have to be careful about giving advice based on stuff that doesn't have any evidence because how did you come to that conclusion if you can't even explain the mechanisms so it's a difficult one and and um, I think what's amusing though is the bulk of the people that go nuts about this carbohydrate thing you know are recreational sort of athletes or or whatever and yeah there's I mean I had a really interesting podcast with Stephen Guillenay about um, the neurobiology of um, obesity you know and what drives um, eating behavior and you've got sort of your sympathetic and parasympathetic approaches to what stimulates um, hunger and satiety and so on and that stuff's fascinating and yes there's roles that food types have on that and and so on but fundamentally and that's what I want to talk to you about is is the importance of carbohydrates for performance but yeah we you know periodization is is a key component here so let's uh, let's just quickly uh, uh, go back to this business of training low carbohydrate um, because we're not saying that it's that it's not a good thing to do could you um, quickly explain to us in you know what some of those benefits might be you bet so um, again one of the key questions an endurance athlete and coach have have in front of them is how can I maximize the stimulus to make mitochondria? One way, certainly, if you look at the molecular biology of it, is just to train more and more and more and more. But at a certain point, um, one of the athletes I work with in Kenya right now, when he's hitting 250 or 260 kilometers a week of running, 130, 140 miles, um, the volume of training becomes saturated. So we need to take a step back and look at other ways to maximize or potentially maximize the stress on the body without, ha- without that athlete having to run more mileage or more kilometers or ride the bike more. Um, when it comes to total training load, I, I, I'm pretty sure a lot of the elite endurance groups are pretty close to maximizing that out. It might be 30 or 35 hours, which is sustainable with some quality, somewhere in that range. So what are other ways we can do this? And other ways are periodically um, and very strategically holding back carbohydrates. And that can be done through fasted training. Wake up in the morning, have a cup of coffee, and hit out the door for two, three hours on the bike or 90-minute run. Or it can be done through um, purposely training with low muscle glycogen. So you do a high-quality session in the morning with lots of glycogen, which, which drops your glycogen, you then purposely only eat um, um, primarily proteins and fats and, and artificial sweetener or fluids over a three or four hour period and then you come back out and do another session under low muscle glycogen conditions. Or more recently, I know um, uh, John Hawley's group is, is, is looking at um, recovery low, which is um, you know doing a hard interval session later at night and then not eating carbohydrate, just eating fats and protein and and, and and being under low carbohydrate conditions all night long. Regardless of which way you're doing the, uh, that approach, one of the main um, mechanisms behind or philosophies behind this is, is in, you know, for the grad students out there, it's, it's looking at phosphorylating AMPK, which is a, a master energy sensor in the cell. Um, when, um, when energy is low, when carbohydrate availability is low, 
Um, AMPK is phosphorylated, and its downstream targets includes, uh, well, a whole host of things, but one of which is PGC1-alpha, and that is one of the major molecular signals to turn on um, uh, mitochondrial biogenesis, capillarization, and all of those other positive muscle adaptive responses one hopes to get um, out of endurance training. Um, calcium calmodulase or calcium turnover from prolonged volume of training does the same thing. But certainly um, prolonged training where you're low on glycogen and low on energy or training in general where there's very little glycogen on board, um, at least in terms of the molecular biology behind it, is, is pretty clear. You can increase um, AMP kinase and associated outcomes. Now, there are about uh, five or six training studies that have used this approach, um, and they're quite mixed. Um, none of them are ergolytic. None of them appear worse for performance. There's a couple now that show performance benefits as an outcome, like pre to post, compared to the control group, which is always training under high carb availability. And then there's about um, four or five that show no difference. So it's not a slam dunk in the literature either. Absolutely not. But we, we have to take a step back and look at those studies. Most of the interventions are 10 sessions total. And I mentioned earlier, uh, an athlete might do three to 600 training sessions a year, of which maybe, you know, if you're an endurance athlete, maybe 10 to 20% of them might be considered low, are training with low carbs. Um, 70% are probably high carbs or some, somewhere along that range. It needs to be periodized. Um, furthermore, like when you go to altitude and you take away a substrate of oxygen, when you take away the substrate of glycogen, power outputs or velocity also decreases um, 10 to 15% initially. Uh, now, John Hawley is on a great paper showing that after about nine sessions of this over three weeks, the low-carb drop-off in power output actually starts to become equalized and normalized with the normal group. So the body does adapt pretty well um, and pretty quickly over three weeks. Um, and, but a lot of the studies only go three weeks long. You know, uh, It is very difficult in a study design to control um, every calorie these athletes eat beyond a couple of weeks. It is really difficult. And so the ketogenic proponents, you know, oh, you know, we need more research. Like, the Finney paper in 82 had seven people. They had seven people because kudos to Steve Finney. It is a hard project to do. <laughs> oh, it is. It oh, is a lot of work. It takes, and it, it takes a serious grad student to take on that problem because it's not like a caffeine study that you can knock out in, you know, just here, take this pill, get on the bike. It's, it's one month where your subjects are going to feel crappy early on. They're going to complain. You're going to have high dropout rates. It, it is a serious undertaking, and, and no kidding there's only one published paper in this area because it is very difficult to do. Um, confounding factors are as well as what happens, and there is some neat data on uh, low-carb diets and weight loss. So what happens if you, um, you know, do a ketogenic diet and your ketogenic group ends up losing more weight than your control group and your performance test is, say, upright running? Well, that's completely confounded as well. Is is the performance benefit from the ketogenesis or the weight loss? Because mm. we we can induce weight loss without being ketogenic as well. So there's just so many confounding variables when 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 you approach approach this. But yeah, long story short is I it, I'm not against um, low carb 
availability here and there. Um, it just needs to be really strategically done. Yeah, and I, I think that's the clear message is the fact it's a strategy. It's a tool in the toolbox. You know? Correct. And it's, it's important to understand how and when you can use it. Um, so let, let's talk about carbohydrates. And, you know, I've mentioned this uh, particularly in conversations about protein. In fact, one of your fellow Canadians, I had uh, Stu Phillips. He's been on this podcast a few times, actually. Um, and of course, and uh, also Jose Antonio, I had a similar conversation. And, uh, you know, what, what I may think is low carbohydrate is someone's ideas of high carbohydrate. And what your idea of high carb is someone's idea of moderate carbohydrate. So I guess we should probably just clarify what we mean or maybe differentiate the difference between what is low carb, high carb, excessive carbs, that sort of thing. Yeah, um, there, there is no consensus statement on this. And it would be great if everyone can get along for half a day and we got together at a big conference in a room and hashed out some clear definitions of what, um, what the spectrum of carbohydrate is in terms of daily, uh, cal- or daily grams of intake and how long it takes to induce an adaptation. Um, you know, reading the literature and in, in terms of the ketogenic approach to carbs, like you got to be under 50 grams a day for probably three to four weeks to become truly ketogenic. Um, uh, you know, um, Dr. Rolex lab out of uh, Connecticut, he'd be a great guy to have on the podcast. Mm. They have a lot of measurements in the blood um, to make sure that they're ketogenic. Um, you know, moderate carbs might be 50 up to 200 grams per day. Um, if you look at some explosive athletes, uh, you know, um, let's just say a beach volleyball player or something along that lines, um, they might not need much more than two or 300 grams a day. Um, compared to an endurance athlete, that's low carbohydrate, but compared to the ketogenic uh, person at 50 grams a day, that's high carbohydrate. Yeah. So the context is always always lost. And then, you know, a Tour de France rider or uh, someone doing Ironman is training in a very heavy, heavy block. Holy smokes, they might be at anywhere from 500 to 800 grams of carbs per day, um, depending on the size of their, their body. So, so it's, it can be a wide spectrum, and it really depends on what the, what, what the sport requirements are, the caloric output of the training in that block, and what the desired, desired adaptations are in that block. Yeah, I don't know, yeah no, no, it does. No, I know. I mean, I, you know, you're at a slight disadvantage because you won't have heard all of the podcasts that have preceded this, but these is, you're mirroring many of the statements made by other people, which is great because I think it's, we're starting to come together a bit, or you, you, you guys as the experts are starting to come together. Um, and I've had a lot of people on, uh, including uh, James Morton, of course, and we got into PGC1 Alpha and all that stuff, but also... Um, I've had um, uh, a number of experts like Lee Hamilton, uh, Keith Barr. We've talked about molecular signaling and, and all that stuff, mainly as it relates to um, um, you know the muscle anabolic response and that sort of thing. Um, but um, in the previous podcast to this one, I, I had um, an expert on uh, Dr. Glenn Davison about um, uh, sort of exercise immunology and nutrition. And um, we did briefly get into carbohydrates. And, of course, there was an area there that, that is often not mentioned. And that is, yeah, yeah you, we can talk about all this molecular stuff. But what about the immune system? Yeah. You know? So in, 
in the real world, um, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, having you have to be very careful when you're sitting down with an athlete and taking their athlete history of whether or not this will even work with them. So if they're pushing big volumes, which they have to do as most elite endurance athletes, and they're sick six, seven, eight times a year, you'd be insane to do low carbohydrate training with them. Um, the you know Glenn knows this better than than most people, a lot better than I do. I'm not an immunologist, but I, I can tell you that the um, inflammatory response under low carbohydrate or when you're not consuming carbohydrates is a lot greater. Uh, interleukin-6, IL-6 is a pro-inflammatory cytokine. It's way higher when you're in low carb. Um, there's a great seminal paper with um, the senior author is Asker Yukendrup, who's a great sport nutritionist, where <clears throat> for a period of his um, research career, they were looking at overtraining and overreaching. And they did a paper where they trained these two groups to be overtrained. They like doubled their training load. And one group was on high carbs every day and the other group was on moderate. Like we're talking 800 grams versus like 400 or something around that range. Um, anyways, the group that went on the high carbs tolerated the training way better. They adapted. The, uh, their performance outcomes were better. Um, so, you know, uh, you, you do need to be careful when you tread into this. Um, again, we're not talking about people that train three times a week and are trying to lose weight. Uh, I'm talking about people who are training. Um, our Olympic rowers last year at one point did 14 training sessions in five days. And so we weren't training low with them purposefully, but I can tell you about by session number three on the water, they had low muscle glycogen, whether it was strategic or not, because you just, you can't replenish your glycogen throughout the day that quickly. And, um, yeah, that's that's the world I work in. So when I hear, you know, certain people say, oh, you know, protein synthesis is elevated for 48 hours. I'm like, I have athletes that have done six sessions in 48 hours. Like, what does that mean? Mm. So don't get me wrong. I'm, I love to participate in the research and we need the research as, as, a, as a stake in the ground to hold what we believe is true. But the, the reality is anecdotally, when you work with athletes in the real world, you also have to understand and appreciate um uh, the realities of, of what they train to be Olympians, which is not necessarily healthy. No, no, no. Like I said, uh, yeah, it's outcome-based, isn't it? You know, what are you trying to do here? If you want to win something, it, it's not at the expense of the health specifically, but there are certain things that are more important than others, and, and winning it is, that's, that's serious stuff. Yeah. So my, my academic yeah. career, um, like my, my results are on PubMed, but then my um, sports science career, my results are the medal table at, yeah. at Rio. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. so it's just different. Yeah. yeah. No, no. So, uh, again, we've alluded to this in other podcasts, but, you know, in order to understand what it is you need to be saying, you need to understand what the needs of your client or athlete are. And, and, I, and I guess in this situation, one topic that's worth quickly getting into is is glycogen depletion or rates of glycogen depletion. Could you, if it is possible, just give us a quick overview of, of why we want to maybe start looking into that a bit as it relates to what, what our clients or athletes are actually doing? Yeah, well, if we go back to the measurement of muscle glycogen, um, um, uh, Bergstrom, which is the biopsy needles named after him, Bergstrom and Holtman uh, in the 1960s were the first ones to measure the impact of carbohydrate intake on muscle glycogen and how that plays a role in performance outcomes. And 
Uh, nowadays, a study like that would be lucky to get published anywhere. Um, but back then, it was in it was in Nature. Um, it was a major major finding. Um, now, since then, there are a ton of studies that have have looked at muscle glycogen. Um, but almost every single one of them, ninety five percent of them, are all cycling based. There are a few running based. Uh, Clyde Williams Lab at Loughborough. Uh, 10, 15 years ago, did a bunch of running glycogen depletion where they actually separated out the biopsy and looked at fiber type specific glycogen depletion. Uh, during my postdoc with Luke Van Loon and Maastricht, um, uh, we used biopsies and then we actually sliced the biopsies in very uh, thin slices so we could put them on a um, basically under a microscope and then we would stain. Uh, the biopsies um, for glycogen or for adipose or for, for, excuse me, for fat on the muscle. So you could look at how much lit up under a fluorescence microscope. It's another way to assess glycogen and you can see fiber type specific utilization of glycogen. Um, so the, the, you know, when you take a biopsy, it's just mixed muscle. But long story short is we actually don't have near the understanding, in my humble opinion, of glycogen depletion rates as what people necessarily think. Almost all of it is in cycling based with moderate intensities. We need to get a lot more information as to what those glycogen depletion rates are across varying modes of exercise um, and varying levels of athletes and across varying exercise intensities. Um, I know John Hawley and I have talked quite a lot about this. Um, and John was starting to embark on a little project with Bank Saltine before he um, unfortunately passed away uh, uh, last year. Um, Bank was a real mentor to a lot of us, and that was certainly um, um, hit everyone pretty hard. Um, but Bank supposedly had a whole bunch of biopsies in the freezer still from a varying amounts of projects where they didn't necessarily measure glycogen, but they could go back and measure it and look at this depletion rate. Um, to my knowledge, there's also not a, a really good systematic review. If you're a grad student out there, um, try to collect every single study that's looked at muscle glycogen and start graphing it in multiple dimensions, like percent decrease with varying intensities or percent decrease over durations or modes. And I, I, I think you start to develop some relationships there. And to my knowledge, that's, that hasn't been done recently. It would be a great systematic review for someone to, to sink their teeth into. Um, so yeah, it needs to be done. Now, there's certain companies coming out now, uh, Muscle Sound. You can check out their website. Yeah, I looked which into actually, yeah. Yeah, supposedly non-invasively measure muscle glycogen through some kind of ultrasound approach. So I'm not an ultrasound expert, but I, I'm assuming it has to do somehow do with water content of the muscle because for every gram of glycogen you store, it, gram, it, it stores 2.7 grams of water. So there's a relationship there that perhaps could be measured somehow. Um, I've met, I've, I think I've read one white page publication. It's not published in the, in the scientific literature yet, but on their website, um, David Neiman's lab, I think it was, out of um, the U.S. has done a biopsy ultrasound comparison. And at least in their s small population pool, there is a correlation there. And I do know through talking through with, with other colleagues that other people are doing validation work, but maybe not finding as strong of a relationship as that first white page suggests, but long story short is if, if this works, um, it really will open up um, another tool in the practitioner's toolbox to really look at glycogen content, not evasively, 
Um, however, the system is um, is not trivial. It is quite expensive. So, you know, step by step, we'll we'll, we'll learn more there. But um, yeah, it's it's not an easy answer um, question to answer. Yeah, I I guess uh, I mean I've been in, reading a lot around. In fact, I'm I'm a reviewer on several journals. I've been reviewing a number of papers. So I can't tell you what they are yet. But I, there seems to be an increase in papers that are trying to look at energy expenditure in athletes, which is a damn difficult thing to do. And of course, one way is uh, GPS uh, and various other things. And and I I think one thing that's becoming clear is a lot of athletes, and I'm not necessarily talking about marathon runners, or, but like your football players, soccer players, that is, rugby players and so on, maybe aren't doing as much running as we thought we were. Um, and that, I think, is interesting for us as practitioners. I, you know, it's important that we look at this from a pragmatic, practical, applied perspective, is, is this business of, of looking at our athletes and not just typing them on the basis of the type of athletics that they are involved in and go, right, that's obviously carbohydrates, just eat carbs all day. But maybe to think more about what they're actually doing. And I mean, do, what do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, so I, I have a, a colleague that works with gymnastics and hmm. um, and she's, uh, her name is Jen Saigo here in Canada. She's a great registered dietitian, works with a lot of our sports. <clears throat> and obviously um, gymnastics have a, have a reputation, whether right or wrong, as, as athletes being in chronic, generally speaking, I'm making massive generalizations here, athletes that are carbophobic and athletes that are in massive negative energy balance. And, and there is that culture in that sport for sure. But she went to a four-hour practice and started tracking the different athletes just with a stopwatch on how much activity were they doing over four hours. <clears throat> and on average, it was six and a half minutes. Wow. Because it's just, it's, it's completely explosive. Yeah. So they'll, they'll just... You know, yeah. hit the runway, do a tumble, and then they stand around for three or four minutes yeah. because it's expensive. So they're going to re-phosphorylate um, phosphocreatine, which takes three, four, or five minutes. Mm. And then they'll do another six-second burst. And it was six minutes. And so, yeah, she took a step back. And, and any of us could have done that. And there are actually a few papers that have looked at that. But she's like, oh, okay. You know, that's actually not a huge... It's, it's much less of a caloric output than one expects Absolutely. Uh, for a four-hour practice. So yeah. just be wary of that. Um, I think there's still generalization, massive issues in, in mm. gymnastics yeah. um, that need to be addressed. But um, you're spot on. Like makes you think, doesn't you it? Know. Yeah. I it mean, makes I, you think big time. It does, yeah. I mean, I, you know, on the one hand, you can be fairly confident that someone who's running a marathon, well, they've been running for the last... X amount of hours, that's a bit easier. But it's like you know, I, I was in the gym this morning and it, um, you know, it was pretty obvious that someone who claims to be having a 45-minute workout in the gym spent most of the time looking at himself in the mirror, uh, on his, yeah, playing around absolutely. with his phone, texting people. How much time yeah. did he actually spend lifting anything? And, and you're right, it's, it's minutes. Um, yeah. And us as nutritionists need to think about this stuff. Like how active is that person really? And uh, yep. like you're saying, we don't necessarily have all the data there, so we've got to we've got to think logically about this stuff. And so even going to like take an elite cyclist, um, there's a lot of discussion right now on zone one versus zone two. If you go a five zone approach to training, zone three being like lactate threshold, zone four being two, two max, VO two max, and zone five being maximum, the amount of time that you spend in the lower zones is really important. Well. 
um, unlike running in cycling, you can really take it easy in soft pedal. Yeah. And so the low end of zone one, really from a training stimulus or an energetic stimulus, is it, like you can do a six hour ride at the low end of zone one, or you can do a six hour ride in the middle of zone two, upper zone two. That is, and if six hours is on the program and you have no sense of the subtle shift of intensity from zone one to zone two, it is completely different workout, yeah. completely different energy demands, and it take, would take a completely different nutrition approach. Absolutely. Yeah, I think we all, we all know, because we've all done this, I, I'm going to stick my hand up here. I've definitely got a few uh, running routes that I go on, and if I'm not feeling so great, I'll run it the easier way round. <laughs> and sure. it's still a 5k or a 10k but yeah. one way was uphill mostly and the other way is downhill and you know damn well yeah. that there's an easier and more difficult way and yet you would probably say no I just you know I run three five k's a week at work out what my energy expenditure is no 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 so listen um we're out of time obviously there's lots of different angles here and perhaps we can get into some of them another time but um I really appreciate you um, donating uh, your valuable time to, to discuss these things with me today. Um, just before we end, um, how do folks learn more about um, you and your research? Uh, I know you've got a, a website. I think your is it Run Hillary Run is your is your yeah. main website? Yeah. No. Um, <laughs> I should update that. I haven't updated that in about eight years. Um, especially your pub, my... especially your publication section. I was I could have sworn. Oh sworn. yeah, I just. <laughs> Yeah, no, no, no. I, I really should. Um, that's my wife's website as a professional runner, and yeah. I was just getting tons and tons and tons of questions, so she made me a little offshoot of that. Um, but it hasn't been updated. I've just been too busy. Mm. Um, so generally, uh, on Twitter or PubMed, or, uh, ResearchGate are all areas that you can um, sure. uh, see what I'm up to. Um, and then, yeah varying conferences and, and what have you. Um, I, to, I'll be honest, with Rio 16 months away and an eight-month-old, um, yeah. uh, up, updating the website is about 100 on the list right now, so it's, it's just, it won't happen. <laughs> I, f- I, f- I feel you, mate. I'm, uh, I'm in a similar scenario. Um, well, actually, I'm, uh, I'm about to start creating a, a page per podcast, which will have links to research and papers we've discussed and so on. So uh, whilst it's not going to be there yet, somewhere in the next few months, listeners, um, there will be a page per podcast. So you'll have those resources. Um, anyway, that brings us to the, uh, to the end. As I said, thank you very much, Trent. It's been a pleasure having you on board. Um, that is, of course, the end of this uh, Guru Performance We Do Science podcast. I... Of course, I'm uh, Laurent Bannock, and you can learn more about this at guruperformance.com, as well as all our other educational programs like the ISSN Diploma, the course that I teach, uh, sorry, the MSc that I run at Middlesex University uh, in sports nutrition and so on. But all things uh, just via guruperformance.com.